Let's pray before we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you might enable us to hear your voice, to hear those things that you want us to hear and to be shaped by them so that we might be people who live as faithful disciples of Jesus. Warn us, Father, of the dangers that we face around us and within us and encourage us by the work that you've done for us. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The only time Catherine and I have really gone church hunting... Uh, was when we moved to another city on the other side of the world nearly 30 years ago. We visited a couple of churches to see where where we might best fit in and serve during the years that we expected to be living there. We had a short checklist. Um, Do they teach the Bible? Does what they do show that they believe it? Do they care for each other? Are they welcoming to outsiders? Is there vision on the lost world? Is this the kind of place where we could serve and help? Have you ever done that exercise? Have you investigated a few places, weighed up the options and made a decision about where you might best be able to serve and encourage others? Have you looked for a church family that you could really be part of? Well, imagine you were a young Christian 2,000 years ago And for one reason or other, you find yourself moving to Achaia or Greece. You'd have sought the advice of those who know the region. You'd produced your own little checklist. And so here you are, a young Christian, looking for other Christians with whom you could meet for mutual encouragement and grow together to be more like Jesus. Which churches do you think you'd be looking at? Well, I'm pretty sure I know one that wouldn't be on your list. (laughs) The church in Corinth. Quite frankly, Corinth was a mess. Though it was wonderfully resourced, though it had very gifted people in leadership and among the congregation, though they'd been taught by Paul, no less, they were a mess. Whatever they might have looked like on the outside, uh, impressive growth, captivating preaching, a great reputation for being the centre of God's action in the region, in reality, they were a mess. Just under the surface, the foundations were crumbling. And we've seen that in the preceding chapters, haven't we? The party spirit that saw one group in the congregation identify themselves over against another. I'm for Paul, I'm for Peter, I'm for Apollos. Boasting in the wrong things and forgetting that it is Christ who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Impressed by the wrong things the prowess of their preachers, what they saw as plausible words of wisdom rather than Christ crucified. An arrogance that placed themselves above those who brought them the gospel and tolerating within their fellowship scandalous examples of immorality that were viewed with horror even by their pagan neighbours. It wouldn't take long to realise that this is a church you wouldn't want to be part of. The extraordinary blessings of God were there, but so was behaviour that compromised them and brought the gospel into disrepute. And brothers and sisters, we're told about it. God wants you and I to know about it. 
because these dangers were not unique to the Corinthians and not unique to the first century. We need to be alert to them and we need to take hold of the remedy. The one who was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, as we read at the very beginning of this letter, wrote this letter for the Corinthians. But God's intention is that we should read it and be both warned and encouraged by it. And even just taking what we've heard leading up to this point, it, it's all too possible for us, isn't it, to identify ourselves as members of a particular group, attached to a particular gifted leader and so different from the others, to boast in who we are and what we've been able to do, to shift the ground of our confidence, perhaps subtly so that we don't even really notice, from the word of the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, to other clever sounding words. To be arrogant enough to think that we are the first people to actually get it right. The only people who take the Bible seriously, the only people who take mission seriously. Or to turn a blind eye, or be afraid to confront behaviour that is contrary to the word of God. And when we turn to 1 Corinthians 6, which has just been read for us, we see more of what's going on in Corinth. And perhaps you might begin to realise that all these things are symptoms. In one way or another, symptoms of a deeper disease that's eating away at the church in Corinth and which can lie in wait for us. And the Apostle Paul, like a gifted surgeon, cuts down deeper than the presenting symptoms to expose the real problem so that it can be addressed. Paul takes up two issues in chapter 6. And it's important that we see these as real issues and serious issues. Tragically, these very things have been real issues in our wider fellowship, even in just the past two or three years. Settling grievances between believers by appeal to the secular courts and sexual immorality that destroys families and undermines the ministry of the church. I've seen them and the damage that they've done right up close. These are real and live issues. And they're just as invasive and just as corrosive as they were in the first century in Corinth. But then so is the underlying problem that Paul exposes for us in this chapter. So let's take another look at 1 Corinthians 6. In verses 1 to 11, Paul confronts the first issue. It seems that there were some serious disputes between members of the congregation. And that in itself is not a surprising thing. In any human community, even a Christian community, simply because it is a community of sinners, forgiven sinners and yet still sinners, there will be disagreements and sometimes serious ones. But the problem here is not so much the disagreements as such. It's rather how they handled those disagreements. And in Corinth, some, it appears, were handling those disagreements by heading to the secular tribunals and courts to get them settled. It should be obvious that Paul is not against the legal system itself. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, when Demetrius and the others wanted to lynch Paul and his companions, the legal system intervened. 
Later in Acts 25, when the Jews were paying for his blood in Caesarea, Paul made his grand appeal to Caesar. When he wrote to the Romans, he insisted that the authorities had been put in place by God. They are servants of God, avengers who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul was not against the secular legal system itself. But there were two massive problems with what was going on in Corinth. First, they were taking this dispute between brothers to be decided by outsiders, by unbelievers. As Paul puts it in verse 1, their cases are being brought before the unrighteous. Now that's stunning, isn't it? The people they expected to judge this case are the unrighteous. They're not in the right with God. And they have a totally different framework of thinking as a result. Different criteria of judgment. Why go to them, Paul says? Shouldn't this kind of disagreement between brothers be something that's settled by other trusted brothers within the congregation? I wonder whether you noticed how many times Paul asks do you not know in this chapter? It's six. Their behaviour is inexplicable, absurd, because they should have known certain things. And here's the first one. They should have known the saints will judge the world. Daniel had made that clear. So had Jesus. God is going to entrust the judgement of the world to his holy people. And if that's true, why can't you deal with far more trivial cases? Now, we don't know exactly what the lawsuit was about. It seems clear it wasn't a criminal matter. It wasn't the kind of thing that would have the perpetrator arrested and then imprisoned. It was a disagreement between brothers that had been allowed to blow out of all proportion. One brother believed he'd been wronged by the other defrauded by the other. But in the grand scheme of things, when measured against the great end-time judgment of the world, whatever it was, it was trivial, Paul says. Surely you can deal with things like this yourself, he says. Don't you know you'll be judging angels? So why go outside the church, Paul asks. Isn't there anyone wise enough among you to deal with this? And the second thing that was wrong is this. Whatever the exact details, the case was about protecting my own interests, asserting my rights, defending my reputation, making sure I don't miss out. In such circumstances, of course, you can easily fool yourself that you're only seeking justice. But it's really, when all is boiled down, just about me. It's about making sure I am not disadvantaged in any way. And I'm certainly going to make sure that you don't disadvantage me. And I'm going to make sure that I don't suffer any loss. And Paul says, when you're thinking like that, when one brother is taking another to court for their own self-protection, then you've already lost. Remember, Paul's not talking about criminal behaviour. That belongs in the courts. He's not talking about the things that deserve punishment, things for which 
these agents of God should carry out the wrath of God. No, this is me making sure that you don't get the better of me. This is me making sure I triumph, that I win and you lose. And Paul says, it is already a colossal defeat when your commitment to your own interests leads you that far. As one preacher put it, lawsuits between us are a confession of our failure as a family. And then Paul says that amazingly countercultural thing, doesn't he? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Better that than the shame and defeat of what you're doing. Because the litigious spirit that seeks my welfare no matter what the cost does in fact lead you to wrong and defraud those who are your brothers. A church where this is going on is in a bad way. There's something eating away at it from the inside. A preoccupation with pursuing my own interests, even at the expense of a brother, is defeat and shame. A high-handed insistence that I am in the right and you are in the wrong leads to disaster. But friends, don't think that that's something remote from us. Don't think it couldn't happen here. It can and it has. And that's when Paul says once again, don't you know? Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He almost always says that when there's plenty of people who have been deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these verses are in the news at the moment. They make very clear that some things will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Unrepentant pursuit of these things will exclude you from the kingdom. This is a matter of salvation. And yes, this long list includes men who practice homosexuality, both the active and receptive part of that equation. Pursue that lifestyle and it will keep you from the kingdom of God. But so will a life of unrepentant greed. So will unrepentant adultery. So will unrepentant drunkenness. So will unrepentant idolatry. So will a life of theft and reviling and swindling. Every one of those things is dangerous. And just as we cannot possibly bless a life characterised by adultery or a life, sorry, a life characterised by idolatry <laughs> or a life characterised by swindling or a life of thieving, so it is impossible to bless a life characterised by adultery or a life characterised by homosexual sex because it is not simply a minor matter. It is not a peripheral matter. It is a matter of salvation, of being in or being excluded from the kingdom. There is a way out, 
and I've hinted at it already and we'll come back to it in a moment, but don't be deceived like so many in our age. A life that pursues these things and refuses to repent will exclude you from the kingdom of God. And that takes us to the second big issue in Corinth. It is, in fact, sexual immorality. Not only indulging in it, not only persisting in it, but even celebrating it. Pretty relevant this week, isn't it? In the middle of this month that we find ourselves. In verses 12 to 20, Paul seems to take up a slogan some of the Corinthians have been using. All things are lawful for me. It sounds so very good at first hearing. I've been freed from the restrictions and inhibitions of the law. Christ has set me free. All things are lawful for me. And straight away, Paul shows the absurdity of just reciting that mantra. Okay, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You might keep saying all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. It seems clear that this saying was being applied to sexual behaviour of at least some in Corinth. My body is my own to do with as I please. A familiar statement that we hear around us. My sexual preferences are my own. I don't have to be constrained by the expectations of others, by convention or by anything else. And once again, there are two massive problems as far as Paul is concerned. The first is they're acting as if their bodies don't matter. The body is un unimportant, and so what we do with the body is unimportant. And Paul wants to knock that one completely on the head. God gave you a body for a purpose. You can't get much clearer, can you, than what Paul says in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What does he mean by that, do you think? Paul himself spells it out in the last verse of the chapter, doesn't he? Your body is meant to be the means by which you glorify God. Christian discipleship is not some kind of esoteric, ethereal existence where you commune with God on a higher plane, where you're lifted out of the mundane, ordinary life of the body in moments of great ecstasy. Some mystical Christian groups have spoken like that and lived like that. The body is something we need to leave behind, something we need to transcend as we get closer and closer to God. But Paul says, no, glorify God in your body. And if you need proof that this is important, then just remember that the resurrection of Jesus was a bodily resurrection. The first problem with what they were doing is that they were acting as if their bodies didn't matter. And the second problem is this. They were acting as if sex did not have consequences. Many of those in our world will say, well, what's the problem with that? There's a widespread deception in the world at large that says sex has no consequences. As long as you have protection and contraception, there are no consequences. Have whatever sexual partner you like, as many sexual partners as you like, it makes no difference. It has no consequences. But Paul appeals to the way God made us in the beginning. He actually quotes Genesis 2 to blow that idea out of the water. The two will become one flesh. Sex unites people in a profound way, even if it's just casual. 
with no lasting commitment. There are consequences. Paul uses the example of a prostitute. We know that a Christian is united to Christ, and it's not just something theoretical or abstract, distinct or separate from everyday life. Paul says your bodies are members of Christ. So if a Christian who's united to Christ joins themselves to a prostitute, something of enormous significance is happening. The perversity of a casual attitude towards sex suddenly becomes highly visible. As Paul put it, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Uh, we noted earlier that Paul includes sexual immorality of various kinds, adultery, homosexual sex, in a long list of other sins. In one sense, sin is sin, and all sin evokes the judgment of God. All sin needs forgiveness. And we've called upon to repent of the sins of greed and drunkenness and idolatry as much as adultery and homosexual sex. But here in these last verses of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul sharpens the focus a little to reveal the difference between sexual sin and every other sin. It's not that these sins are worse sins than other sins. It's not as if the judgment for this kind of sin is far worse than that for other sins. But sexual sin is uniquely dangerous because it is a sin against your own body. Every other sin a person commits, Paul writes, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. And that's why you need to keep as far away from it as possible. Go to whatever lengths you have to in order to avoid it. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul writes. It's a particularly strong word he uses. Run for your life. Don't flirt around the edges of it. Don't be found even in the vicinity of it. Flee. All things are lawful for me. Don't kid yourself. Some things are not only unhelpful, they're positively deadly. So, two issues with the church at Corinth. Brothers taking brothers to court, treading all over the bonds of family in their determination to ensure they protect their own interests. And second, a casual attitude towards sex, acting as if their bodies and what they did with their bodies did not matter, ignoring the fact that sex has consequences. But I said at the beginning that these were only symptoms. There is a common underlying disease that was eating away at the church in Corinth and it produced all of the symptoms that we've noticed so far as we've travelled through the letter. And that is that the Corinthians have not taken seriously who they are. What God has done to make them who they are. And the massive difference that that makes. You see, there was a time when the list that Paul makes in verses 9 and 10 would have been an accurate description of the Corinthians, or at least some of them. Such were some of you, he writes. And the were is important. Paul writes in verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Something happened to you. 
You didn't wash yourself. You didn't sanctify yourself. You didn't justify yourself. Something happened to you. And that list does not describe you anymore. You can't pursue your own interests at the expense of your brother and in the law courts because this has happened to you. You can't pursue a casual approach to sex as if you can do what you like with whoever you like, whenever you like, because this has happened to you. Forgiveness and repentance change the course of your life and you mustn't be deceived into thinking such monumental self-absorption in either direction, lawsuits or sexual immorality, does not matter. Such a preoccupation with your own rights and with your own pursuit of so-called sexual freedom is in fact a denial of who you are. Do you not know? Don't you know? You've got the very basics wrong if this is what you're doing. Which is, of course, why Paul ends with the powerful reminder of verses 19 and 20. And the last of his do not know, do you not knows. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Remember and understand who you are as Christian people, not your own, bought with a price, those who were washed, sanctified and justified, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, as he wrote in chapter 1. And that ought to make a difference to how you deal with disagreements and what you do with your body. Now, I thought before uh, we pray, I'd ask Susan to come and talk to us about having good disagreement. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Mark. So when do you guys disagree with someone and what kind of things do you disagree on? Well, we've seen conflict within the church in Corinth. It was, we're not exactly sure what they were disagreeing on, but we know that it was serious because they were in court over each other. So I had three thoughts about having conflict as Christians. First, we are going to disagree. Christians disagree constantly with each other. And as Mark mentioned, over in England, we've seen brothers and sisters in Christ disagreeing profoundly with huge consequences, not just in England, but throughout the whole of Anglican communion. But it's not just with this issue, is it? Because we disagree with each other on so many things. And as your minds are shaped through theological study, as you become more sure in what you think and why you think that way, you're going to disagree with more and more people and with more and more things. When I came to college, I thought I was coming here to study with like-minded people. When I finished college, I realized that the only theologian that I agreed completely 100% on, on everything was me. <laughs> so, don't be surprised when you disagree, because Paul wasn't upset that they were disagreeing with each other. Paul himself didn't agree with everything with other brothers and sisters in Christ. But think about the way that we're disagreeing with each other. Because in Corinth, they were fighting out their differences in the court before non-Christians. Non-believers were watching them air their dirty laundry at each other 
where they could see them uttering and hurling spiteful, angry, bitter words at each other. How do you think we would go if we were to approach these non-believers and tell them that Jesus is a God of love and peace? How do you think they would say, feel if we invited them to church to meet with other Christians? It's not going to go well at all, is it? So the third thought I had to share with you was to love each other even as you disagree. Now, I wish I could tell you that the brothers and sisters that you're sitting next to each other, you're always going to get along and you're always going to agree. But if you haven't already discovered that that is not the case, can I tell you, it's only a matter of time. And when you do, I can tell you, it's going to be over something very serious because it's going to involve your thoughts about the saviour that you love and something that's so close to your heart about what he taught about himself and about ourselves. And so when you disagree, it's going to hurt because you care about each other and you care about Jesus. I wonder if you're going to get to a stage where you're going to wonder, can I even trust this person anymore when we disagree on something so important? But I do want to urge you to keep working hard and not to give up on each other when that happens. Continue to talk, even if it means that you need to walk away for a few days, cool down and come back and talk about it again. I want to say keep praying for each other and keep remembering that Jesus loves that person and died for them on the cross. And I want to say continue to treat them as your brother or sister in Christ. And as I've shared those thoughts, I want to add a little bit of a postscript, something that wasn't relevant in Paul's time. But it's about what are we going to do when we disagree with each other and we attempted to vent our frustrations on social media. Paul talks about the fact that they were suing each other and letting non-Christians sit in judgment. These days we have a really powerful and accessible tool where we can air out our dirty laundry and non-Christians can sit in judgment in the court of public opinion. No matter what you use these days, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, there's probably a new thing that you guys are using that I don't know about because I'm too old. Um, we need to factor in how we're using these things because this world loves when people are feuding with each other on social media, don't we? This world loves it when Christians are divided. And this world has forgotten how to disagree well. And so, let's be different. Don't give them any more fodder. And remember, as Mark said, we have been sanctified in the name of Jesus and God's Holy Spirit lives within us. Let's disagree well with each other in every area of our lives.